0: <laughs> Absolute genius.
1: Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is. Discovery is. Questions. Research.
2: Technology. Unbelievable. Without further ado, this is The
3: Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to The Naked Scientists, the show where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine. With me, James Titko. Modern medicine has given many of us the gift of much longer lives, but should it also be providing us with the option of a more comfortable death? That's the argument of those who are in favour of a change in the law on assisted dying here in the UK, which we'll be exploring today.
2: From Cambridge University's Institute of Continuing Education, this is The Naked Scientist.
3: The debate around whether assisted dying should be made legal in the UK has made front-page news following Dame Esther Ranson's revelation that she has stage 4 lung cancer. The broadcaster told BBC Radio 4 that the current legislation needs a rethink and that she's decided to join an assisted dying clinic in Switzerland.
4: I have joined Dignitas. I have, um, in my brain, thought, well, if the next scan says nothing's working... I might buzz off to Zurich. But, you know, it it puts my family and friends in a difficult position because they would want to go with me. And that means that the police might prosecute them. So we've got to do something. At the moment, it's not really working, is it?
3: Daymester Ranson speaking to BBC Radio 4. As Daymester alludes to in that interview, assisting suicide is a crime in most parts of the UK, and it can even carry a custodial sentence. Although there is no such specific crime in Scotland, it is possible that helping a person to die can lead to prosecution. It means family members, friends and medical professionals could find themselves in the dock if they help someone to die. Campaigners say this is unjust and the law in the UK should be changed like it has been in Canada, parts of Australia and the United States. Jenny Carruthers is one of them and I've been speaking with her.
0: My cancer was diagnosed as terminal three years ago. And I've had a checkered journey. I've been a medical professional and I've cared for my partner through his terminal illness. So I have seen different sides of the debate. I think it is very different when you look from a personal perspective, the debate as a, an abstract when it's about the ethics. It's a really wide one, a really important one, but your perspective changes when it becomes personal. And for me, watching my partner, we had amazing palliative care help, but there were things they couldn't do. And it was enormously difficult for myself. I had young children at the time. Hearing him in agony and being unable to help, they couldn't really mitigate his pain, Mm. his cancer spread to his bones, which is the same spread that I've got. So I kind of understand where I'm heading and the potential for me to endure the kind of pain that he had. I mean, we're on different treatments and my current treatment's amazing, but I am vaguely aware of how difficult it might get, as are my children, and the options for me are limited you know either i endure what he did or i leave my children and go abroad and find a little bit of peace earlier or think about other options and none of them are very palatable you speak jenny on experiences that are
3: you know unimaginably difficult this built on experiences you mentioned your time as a medical professional yourself providing am i right in saying sort of of end-of-life care for other patients? What are your memories of treating those
0: people? Yeah, I worked in an acute gastro ward as a carer, so it was very much hands-on patient care. And some of those patients were end-of-life. They had very serious gastro problems. And it was very difficult for families coming in. You've got six patients in a bay, so there wasn't a lot of privacy You can make them as comfortable as you can. You can't always give them the privacy of a side room. And understanding there are other patients that can hear them that potentially are in a similar position, knowing that that's somewhere their illness might take them as well is difficult for everyone. And obviously, I'm not a doctor. I don't administer medicine, or I, I didn't. But Asking people to do things, asking people, is there anything else that we can provide? Mm. And knowing that really, within our system, there isn't anything else that you can do to alleviate that pain. It's very wearing, very emotionally tiring for everyone who provides care. So, yeah, our system has limitations. And if we could change the law, if it was possible, it would give people more dignity not to be able to make the choice personally to do that for myself or for my partner to do that for himself. It feels unbalanced and it feels like we have to give people another choice.
3: You spoke of some of the shortcomings when it came to some of the the care that you were able to provide or the NHS was able to provide in contrast to the very... High praise you had for the palliative care received by your partner. Is your point here that obviously we'd love to be able to give the best palliative care to everyone, but regardless of that, there are still some instances where the most sympathetic option is to enable some sort of assisted dying?
0: Yeah, that is my belief. At the moment, our system doesn't have every answer, and sometimes chronic pain isn't able to be controlled it just seems that there are kinder ways that we could apply the law and that whilst our current palliative care tries really really hard to cope with all situations it can't and if the situation were changed we could be more humane and people could could find more dignity at the end
3: Thank you so much to Jenny Carruthers for sharing her story so openly. They're making the case for the legalisation of assisted dying in the UK. But there is another side to this debate. I've been speaking to Life PRS, TV presenter and Paralympian Baroness Tanny Gray-Thompson. She's worried about what a potential change in the law might mean for disabled people.
4: As a disabled person, I have some experience of the daily discrimination that people face, lack of access to education, work, transport. So for me, I really worry that disabled people's place in society is not valued and that disabled people will come out of this very poorly. I've had someone say to me, if my life was like yours, I'd kill myself. And I come from, I have a very privileged background. But as a legislator, we're trying to look at all the foreseen and unforeseen consequences and that's where you do have to look at personal but you have to look at society as a whole and i'm very concerned about the impact it will have on a huge number of people
3: people who are proponents of assisted dying will say if we put safeguards in place where doctors maybe one or more can verify someone is of sound mind why should they not be able to choose an assisted death without implicating their families in a crime or even having to leave them behind and pursue this abroad?
4: So as an abstract, that sounds inherently sensible. However, who are the doctors? How long do they have to make that judgment? We know that mental capacity legislation hasn't been fully invoked. So what sounds very simple comes with a whole range of complications And we have to be mindful, you know, in the last 18 months, we passed legislation on coercive control in Parliament. And you can't underestimate the fact that people may be coerced into thinking this is the only option. And it's awful when you hear of people who've seen and witnessed difficult deaths. We don't talk about death as a country. And we need to be supporting people to make sure that they have quality care in jurisdictions where like New South Wales, although that's relatively new, where they've brought in palliative care budgets have been slashed. So it sounds very simple, agree the principle, and then kick the real decisions into the long grass of secondary legislation. But the devil is always in in the detail.
3: Mm -hmm. This is where the debate is, isn't it? There are risks affiliated, of course, with a change in the law on assisted dying. But is it worth it? Is it, as some people argue, a matter of autonomy for people to choose what's best for them in the most personal of circumstances, the case of death.
4: Yeah, and and I've been pushed hard on my view on choice because I'll argue about choice for disabled people, but choosing how you live in a society is very different from bringing in legislation which would have an impact on much wider individuals. It's not an easy one. I do not want anyone to have a bad death, absolutely not. But this is a big change in society. If, if this law comes about, it changes our relationship with people. And I believe if we start talking about the NHS and we need to save money and we need to do things differently, we're not too far from actually euthanasia. I think we are heading towards a dystopian future if the law is changed.
3: Tani Grey-Thompson. And now to the palliative care profession, who have also expressed concerns about changing the law to allow assisted dying. I've been speaking with Baroness Elora Finley, who is a professor of palliative medicine at Cardiff University and has taught end-of-life care internationally.
5: I think it's very worrying to hear about people who are frightened and who see the situation as hopeless when actually we need to be redoubling efforts to relieve distress. We need to be looking at new ways of managing things. But shortening life, cutting life off, isn't the answer to managing distress. Some people are experiencing pain. Even the best palliative
3: care is unable to alleviate, though, aren't they? I mean, Jenny says of her memories of her husband's care at their hospice, we had amazing palliative care help, but there were things they could not do.
5: I think if when you look at what has happened in other countries that have changed the law on this, you find that there isn't less pain. In fact, the evidence is that the symptom control... Unrelieved symptoms is worse. And I think it becomes dangerously easy to think that death is a shortcut rather than actually saying, let's look again, what else should we be doing? When you look at the data from Canada, it shows that the percentage of people who are accessing palliative care has dropped over time. Euthanasia has become normalised so they get euthanasia but they're not getting the palliative care options and actually we don't even know what the quality of palliative care is overall. Another element of this debate
3: is if you decide assisted dying should be legal in instances where a person is in severe seemingly untreatable pain, why draw a distinction between people for whom the prognosis is terminal and for those it isn't? I'm thinking of something like severe depression for example. Legal lines have to be drawn somewhere. And you're of the opinion that where the current law lies in this country is on
5: balance for the best. The difficulty is that you can't predict prognosis. Anyone who pretends that they can say someone has a prognosis of six months, they're just guessing. You cannot predict how long someone has to live. Some people die much more quickly. Others live remarkably much longer. The other thing is that different diseases and disease conditions change and move on. But yes, you're right. There are people with long-term, severe chronic pain, and it may take some years for them to adapt. The person who's been in a terrible accident, lost limbs, it may take a long time for them to find a new way of moving forwards. But what you have to ask yourself is, what's society's duty to people? Are we there to support people and help them through? Or are we saying, well, you're in despair and we'll give up on you, basically? Or are we saying that we want to support you? If you look at the instance of suicides and look at Victoria, people thought that when they changed the law, it would decrease the number. Actually, that isn't what's happened. The data shows that their unassisted suicide rate has Approximately doubled. So something changes in society. But to see death as an answer to fear really seems a very dangerous route to go down.
3: Is there anything that our listeners should be aware of that's happening in the world of palliative care to help alleviate the concerns of people who either have a terminal illness or know people who have one that their death will be as dignified as possible?
5: there's research and there are advances in palliative care, but there are also across the whole of medicine with new treatments and new ways of managing conditions. And some of those have really revolutionized conditions. But the other thing that people need to be aware of is that ending life is not simple. The drugs that are used have not been approved anywhere. People don't know actually how they work. Some of the ones used in euthanasia in about two thirds of cases, the person's completely paralysed, so they can't breathe. They die of asphyxia. This is not straightforward. And the complication rate when the drugs are taken for assisted suicide has been up at 11% in the last 12 years in the data from Oregon. So this isn't straightforward. It isn't taking one little pill and it's all over quickly. It actually can be pretty complicated and pretty awful and we don't know even how this cocktail of drugs that's used is really working and what they're doing and nobody has researched them properly.
3: That was Baroness Alora Finlay expressing her concerns about what she called the normalisation of assisted dying and also what is known about the drugs that are used in some countries to help people end their lives – now, I put these points to Dr. Anise Asmael, who is Emeritus Professor of General Practice at the University of Manchester and a board member of the Dignity in Dying campaign group who believe that assisted dying for terminally ill, mentally competent adults should be legal in the UK.
1: Yes, I'm a bit um, concerned that, that she puts it like that. I mean, I think there's a lot of fear mongering going on here and I think that's wrong. I think we have a lot of experience when we talk to doctors in the U.S. and Australia who provide assisted dying. They give a totally different perspective on this. We have a lot of information about how assisted dying works if you compare it to a lot of other areas of medicine. And I look after dying patients, and it is a bit of trial and error. You know, you do things and it doesn't work as well. You try out other things. So that, that is how medicine works in real life. And of course, I'm not denying that there might be individual cases where things haven't gone as smoothly as we would expect, but in the vast overwhelming number of cases from what we have understood, and what I've understood by looking at this, is that this isn't the case. So I I think it's a bit wrong to sort of make out that this is untrialed practice, that we don't know what we're doing, because I think it's based on many, many years of experience from around the world, actually. And
3: the argument that some people make that this is a slippery slope, the change in the law, dignity and dying reposing towards normalising euthanasia. Is that a risk? Is there a chance that when we start going down this path, palliative care becomes less accessible or less of a priority?
1: I don't don't accept that at all. I I, I was an opponent of assisted dying. And my own experience looking after patients of mine who were dying, that then brought me to the position where I realised that in a way assisted dying is part of what palliative care should be about. So it's not one or the other. And all the evidence that we have shows that palliative care improves, actually. I think that's the other thing to think about. So you might decide when you're given a terminal diagnosis that I want to have that option of assisted dying. But in the end, about 1%, I think, actually go through with it. But it's sometimes having that peace of mind that, look, if things get unbearable, If my symptoms and my pain can never never be alleviated, I do have that option as well. And so I think that is more often the situation that we're faced with, rather than the examples that, that Baroness Finlay gave. You know, someone who has a catastrophic accident and then decides they want to end their life. I don't think that we have ever talked about it in those ways. I'm talking about people who are coming to the end of their life. They're going to be dying, typically in my experience, within a few weeks. And they are having unbearable suffering, and I just don't accept this premise that we'll just flick a switch and say, yeah, it's all right. No, no, I think it's going to be difficult. You've got to have two doctors get involved in it. There's got to be sort of a legal process that you have to go through, which will be quite stringent, I think. And I think that we can judge when you have a cancer with metastases, which have gone to your brain, to your liver. You know, you're going to die. And this idea that, you know, we don't know prognosis as well. I would say that the majority of doctors looking at people like that will tell you that, that you will probably die in the next two or three weeks. And we need to sit down and, and work on how we're going to do this. Call your family. Let's talk to everyone. Let's explain what's going to happen. But in this situation, there would have already been a discussion that when you get to the point and you can no longer cope, then you have to let us know and we can then do the next and final stage.
3: Many thanks to Dr. Anise Esmail. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, James Titko. We've been hearing some of the impassioned arguments for and against changing the law on assisted dying in the UK. As Dr Aniz Esmail was suggesting, any change in the law would require new framework and guidance. But what exactly did the statute book say about what medical professionals can and can't do currently when someone nears the end of their life? Chris Smith has been speaking to Imogen Gould, a professor of medical law at the University of Oxford.
6: One first principle is that people can never be compelled to have any form of treatment. So a person who has the capacity to make their own decisions can always simply say, I don't want to take that medication. And that may have all sorts of implications for them, one of them which might be that they then die. The other strand to that is doctors can never be compelled to give treatment, that they consider not to be in someone's interests or that won't have any efficacy, that won't help them. And the doctor may take the view that actually there are no treatments left that they think will do anything that will help the person. And so in those situations, they don't have to treat them. These might be treatments that might have kept someone alive for a little bit longer, but they're extremely onerous, they're very burdensome and unpleasant. And the doctor might think, well, look, on balance, this is just not indicated in this case.
2: From what you're saying... I could as a doctor elect to withdraw support I could stop giving food and water to a person if I don't think that's in their best interest but what I couldn't do then is to give them a massive dose of morphine and stop their heart because it would amount to the same thing but I would be actively doing something rather than actively not doing something and although they amount to the same thing legally that would be different then.
6: Yes absolutely absolutely. That you absolutely cannot do something that actively has the intention of ending somebody's life.
2: But I cannot feed them and starve them to death.
6: Yes. And that essentially is the nub of part of the euthanasia and assisted dying debate is that some people take the view that those two things are actually morally equivalent. In fact, that it's worse to withdraw treatment from someone and withdraw support from them so that they die over a long period of time rather than, as they often frame it, as the merciful thing of ending their lives more quickly. What do you
2: see as the direction of travel? Do you think that we'll still be having this sort of debate in a decade? Or do you think that probably we will find ourselves in countries like the UK following countries like Switzerland where there are opportunities for people to go down this path if they elect to do so?
6: So I think we've been trying to travel down this path for at least 25 years. So there have been measures brought through Parliament multiple times to try to push in that direction. And they've all obviously failed because it's such a vexed debate. But what we do see at the moment is that the government has undertaken an inquiry and is continuing to undertake the inquiry into assisted dying. So I think there are steps forward forward towards either resolving the question in favour of changing the law or drawing a line under the debate and taking a position that it's been thoroughly investigated and the government will take a position. But which way it will go, I think, is very difficult to anticipate at this point precisely because the arguments are quite finely balanced for and against.
3: Imogen Gould from the University of Oxford there, explaining how, regardless of any proposed change in the law, the end of life is a very knotty matter legally and medically already. To round off the discussion today, we thought it's sensible to speak with the British Medical Association, the trade union for doctors in the UK, given they have recently changed their stance on assisted dying from opposition to one of neutrality. Here's Dr Andrew Green from the BMA's Ethics Committee.
7: Back in 2020, we had one of the biggest surveys ever of medical opinion, which had almost 30,000 responses, looking at doctors' attitude to physician-assisted dying. Now, in a nutshell, what our survey showed is that approximately 50% of doctors felt that there should be a change in the law to make this legal, with the other 50% either being opposed or being unsure.
3: Those numbers, such a divide. I suppose that's speaking to the conflict. Doctors expressing a view on this subject have to weigh up between their commitment on the one hand to do no harm and their instinct to alleviate a patient's suffering.
7: That's correct. And of course, faced with the diversity of opinion within the organisation, it made our traditional position of opposition really one that was difficult to hang on to. And that's why we changed towards one of neutrality. And of course, neutrality, an interesting concept. It doesn't mean in any way that we are disinterested. It doesn't limit our ability to speak out. All it means is that we believe that it's such a fundamental subject, that the decision as to whether it should be legalised or not is one for the population as a whole. If society goes down this route, then we have very clear ideas about what would be required to make the system work for doctors and, as importantly, uh, work well for patients. But it's not our decision to make.
3: One of the issues you're going to have to grapple with were the law to change is how would this be implemented in the UK? Would this be a service that the NHS offered?
7: Whether it's the NHS service we've not actually looked into or we've not formulated a specific opinion on, um, what we do feel very strongly about is that any service should be based on an opt-in model of delivery and not an opt-out. So in other words, participation in physician-assisted dying wouldn't be something that would just be expected of you as a doctor. It would be provided by doctors who'd taken an active interest in it and has actively opted in to provide the service. Now, that has huge advantages for doctors because it takes the pressure off any doctors who feel that they couldn't participate. But also it would be really good for any patients who do want to access the service because they would be sure that they were engaging with doctors who were interested, who were properly trained, who were working within a proper service that would be resourced and accountable. And all of these things would provide protection not only to doctors, but also to patients.
3: Dr Andrew Green from the BMA, many thanks to him and to everyone who's contributed to our discussion, our exploration of the debate around assisted dying that will run and run, I'm sure, for a long time to come. Please do get in touch. I know many of you will have personal stories about this. You can tweet at Naked Scientists or email chris at nakedscientists.com. We'd love to hear from you. And join us next week when we'll be examining the medical profession's role in warfare. We'll be unpacking the history of surgery on the battlefield. Hear from a retired four-star general, a pioneer of war wound surgery, and the head of Médecins Sans Frontières in the UK. We do hope you can join us then. The Naked Scientists comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls Royce. I'm James Titko. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye.